0: It's good to be with you guys um, this morning. I wanted to, uh, I was sitting there, and a couple of times I wanted to jump up and share something while he was talking about uh, communication. And I thought of one thing, and then Alan just reminded me of something. You know, one of the things that I wanted to say in our culture, this is only becoming worse, is cell phones. And um, I was just sitting here thinking, when you are... Having, you know, trying to communicate with your spouse or your children or anyone for that matter, put your cell phone down, uh, turn it off. Um, I am really um, funny about eye contact when I'm talking to Alan. And if he, you know, he is a busy man, he does get a lot of texts, but if he is on his phone, I won't talk to him. And I'm not doing that to be ugly to prove a point. I just, I, I really need eye contact to know that I'm being heard. And so I'll just stop for a minute and allow him to finish, and, um, and, and then I'll start talking to him again. It's just very important, and, and it is only getting worse. I know when we go out to dinner, you know, and our kids are getting older, they're starting to have phones. We've actually waited until our kids get into high school to get them a cell phone. And so my son has, he's 15 now, he has a cell phone. And when you go out to restaurants, and you literally will see every person at the table and they're on their phones. And so let's just be a people that will go out to dinner and we will have family time and we will literally put the phones away. I was We were listening to a talk the other day. I don't even think he was a believer, but he was saying how when he and his friends, he was talking about what uh, video games and technology, what we're going to see in the future, how it's going to affect our children in a negative way. And he was saying how when he and his friends go out, they take one phone, everybody else leaves their phones at home, and they take one phone, but it's in someone's purse, and they never get it out. They go out to dinner, and they actually have conversation. So let's be the one family in the restaurant that we're sitting there and we're laughing and having fun with our kids and talking with one another. I think that's very, very important. And Alan and I were just sitting there talking, and I just feel like I'm... There's, I want to share a couple of things. I feel like God had laid on my heart, but Alan and I were just talking, and I, I feel like I just want to tell you that, um, you know, I think as a woman, I think it is so important that um, we, like Alan was saying, that we can approach our husbands and that they are, we know they're approachable. I mean, I will go to anything with Alan if I have an issue the minute I can I will go to him he is approachable I know I early on I could not I didn't feel like I could approach him but now I will tell him anything and that is so important for a woman you know a lot of times I think with men they think they've got to fix it and a lot of times we just want to be heard we just want to be able to get it out especially I'm at home with kids and I just want to be able to talk to somebody and I don't A lot of times, I don't need you to fix it. I just need to get it out. And so listening for a man to his wife is so important. And ladies, um, and this is something I've had to learn with Alan, and I'm still learning, but men this day and time, they really just need to know that they have what it takes. A man wants to take care of his family, and he wants to be, you know, he wants to lead in a loving way, and men just need to know they are the man. They have got what it takes that God has given them everything to be the man that God has called them to be. And one thing you can that's good for your phone, I'm, I'm learning to get in Alan's face and to say things, but I've not always been good at that. But I can pick my phone up every day and I can write on there just a message to him and at the end just say, you are my hero, you are the man. And it took a while because at first I didn't really mean it but the
1: <laughs> that was a long time ago
0: long time ago but just like with you know the power of life and death is in our tongue the more we say it and speak it we will start to believe it and so i, I just want to encourage you with those two things as um women and men another thing i just wanted to give you a present word of something that has been going on in my life personally as we have just gone through this twenty one days of fasting and prayer, I felt like especially just want to speak this to the ladies, but of course, it can speak um, to the men too I just wanted to say today, you know I was talked some last night about the lie that I had lived out of was that I was not good enough, and i 've lived that out of that lie most of my life, you know through the years God I think has been doing something, but I feel like this twenty one days of prayer has been really. Um, just a breakthrough for me, and so I just feel like that, especially to the ladies, I just want to speak a word to you, and I hope, you know, my prayer is that as I speak this word to you, what God has given me, that it would just come alive to you in your heart, and that the Holy Spirit would just confirm in your spirit that this is a true, just a true word about what God thinks about you. I just want to say today that God is not mad at you at all, and the Lord is not disappointed in you at all. I grew up thinking that God was always mad at me. I was never enough, and I thought that God was up pointing his finger at me. And, you know, as great as my relationship is with Alan, Alan cannot love me like God loves me. I have a heavenly father that loves me absolutely perfectly. I don't think on earth we will ever be able to grasp how much God loves us. Now, we can ask him to reveal himself to us, and he will, and I think we can have a true understanding of his love, but I don't think we will ever be able to understand the extraordinary love of God. My notes keep going away. I think for me, in order to have a great marriage as a woman, now we all need to know this, but I think I'm speaking from a woman's perspective. You have got to know that your identity rests solely in Jesus, period. That is where your identity rests. And I just want you to know today that you are loved. We just talked about that. You are loved perfectly You are forgiven of every sin you have ever committed, will ever commit. The Bible says that he will remember your sins no more. When the enemy tries to come in and remind you of your past, you remind him of his future. And um, I think Carmen said that years ago in a song, you tell him where to go because God does not remember any of it. You are forgiven keep losing my place. You are accepted, totally accepted in the love of Christ. You are complete in him. God has put in you everything that you need to be the woman or man of God that he has called you to be. You are complete. Your identity is in him. He has adopted you into his family. When you really realize, I am a daughter of the Most High God, I am royalty, it'll change everything about the way that you live. Um, And he has redeemed your life. He has put you back into the garden. That's how we were supposed to live, in the garden, walking in the cool of the day with the Lord, just living life in relationship with him and through this 21 days of fasting and prayer i had i had some ladies at my church to pray for me and um now this does not happen to me a lot but they were praying for me and i had um a vision and god took me back I, I lived in the same house i think for i think i was 20 for 20 years and um we had this tree in the backyard i think it was called a mimosa tree if i'm saying that right anyway it was this Flow, flowing tree, and and while they were we were worshiping first, and they started praying for me while we were praying. God gave me a vision of standing underneath that tree. And when I was a little girl, I used to love to play. I would climb this tree and just stand there, and I just had this vision of being under that tree. And the wind was blowing, and and it was just very freeing. And I was just sitting there, and I was like, Why in the world am I having this vision of being under this tree? And um, I just felt like that God spoke to me that, Tina, I want you to realize I'm breaking through that lie that you're not enough. And I'm going to prove to you that you are enough. I want to take you back to innocence. I want to take you back to the garden, to the place. I have placed you back in your rightful place. And that is, as my daughter, I want to show you that I love, I have loved your heart from the beginning I have chosen you, and that's where I want to take you back just to know that all I want is just to be with you. And then, I I mean, I think even on my own, I think just God wants us to have a childlike faith. It may sound so simple, but it was so big for me. It was like I just even had, because I never knew this about God, I even had like a vision of like me and Jesus, just we had a, in my home growing up, we had this picture of Jesus hanging on the wall. And I think it's the picture of every, the picture that we all kind of have in our head of his face. And so that's my picture of Jesus that I've always had is that face. And then I don't know why I always, I guess it's been in children's books. He has on a blue and white robe and it's, you know, flowing. And it was like, I just even had a picture of him being in my backyard, and he, all he cared about was being with me, and he was even in the backyard with me. I used to love to make mud pies, and they looked like the most delicious thing, and I used to want to eat them, and it was like Jesus was with me, and we were making mud pies together, and he, and we were laughing together, and that's all he cared about was being with Tina. And um, I just think that God just really, in a just in a childlike way, just wanted to show me how much he loves me, how much he, no matter where I go, I can never escape him. He is with me all the time. He is coming after me. And I want, especially the ladies to know today, you are so loved. He is coming after you. He wants to just walk with you in the backyard. And even if, even if, You didn't have a good father, even if you never knew your father, you know. I'm sorry that that happened in your life, but you do have a heavenly father that loves you absolutely perfectly. And I would, I just, and I'm almost done, I just want to encourage you. I have just been meditating, meditating, meditating on Psalm 139. I want to memorize the whole thing, but there's just a couple of things in it that, you know, it just talks about that he. He knows, one of the um, versions says that he is familiar with all our ways. There is nothing in your life that you can hide from God. He knows everything, and he still loves you, and he still keeps coming after you. It says we can never escape him. And then this part just, I don't know, it just really speaks to me. It talks about how he made our inner parts, He knit us together in our mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made that we need to know that full well. It's the truth. And then this part where it says, he watched us. He never, this just came to me, he never left us for a second when he was putting our parts together and making us. He was there for every part of us being made. It says, you saw me before I was born. I was born, I was woven together. I mean, I just even thought about he put in me, you know, it was like I'm, I need to put this part in Tina because it's something that Alan needs. Um, I'm going to make her a shopper. She loves to shop. I mean, just little things like that. Everything about me, he made me who I am. And then how precious are his thoughts towards us. They cannot be numbered. They outnumber the sands Um, in the ocean. I was sharing that with my girls the other day and they were like, that is a lot of thoughts. You, You can't number those. And so I just wanted to encourage, especially the ladies with that, because I feel like it is so important in marriage. It will bless your marriage. It will bless you. I think it's so important for you to be able to be vulnerable and just to Just to be able to bring into your marriage all the things about you in such a great way. You have got to know that your identity rests in Christ.
1: That's good. Well, let's talk a little bit about sex, which all the guys are excited. It's our favorite topic, right? So, you know, just a basic understanding. Sex is a thermometer, not a thermostat. In other words, sex in our relationship, in fact, if you're having issues with sex, uh, you don't need a sex book, you need a relationship book, Uh, because the secret to having a great sex life is having a great relationship, and sex is a gift from God. Uh, And so, because it's, you know, sex isn't like this thing we discovered God didn't know about. Everything good about sex, God created. God made it that way. God, God gave us bodies that feel all that we are able to feel and to enjoy sex the way we enjoy sex. All that's God's idea. All that's in the heart and mind of God. In fact, often Tina and I, before having sex, we'll, we'll pray or worship together before sex. Why? Because sex is not some dirty thing that we're doing that God doesn't know about. Sex is a beautiful thing that really allows us to celebrate our oneness. It's really, it's it's an act of worship. It allows us to express our our love to each other. I mean, sex is a a wonderful thing and it's a gift from God. One of my favorite quotes about this, Dr. Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary, said, sexual pleasure is not an accident of human biology. It's one of the greatest, sweetest gifts gifts to human beings. So, because sex is a gift from God, it's something that we should talk about in the church. In fact, one of the reasons so many church people have issues with sex is because the church has not talked enough about it in the world. That's all the world talks about, right? And so we're not careful like with our kids, again, 15, 14, and 9. If we don't talk to our kids about sex, they're going to learn sex from the world. I don't want my, I don't want the world defining for my children what sex is all about. I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to set them up to have a great sex life in their marriage. So we talk with our older two. We talk very openly and regularly about sex, and they you know, our, our middle daughter tells us everything. She's one of those kids, right? She just tells us everything. And it's shocking, and she's an eighth grader, it's shocking in middle school what the girls in middle school are talking about. I mean, sex is so prevalent. A uh, kid, she was telling us just last week about uh, a girl bringing in a sex, some type of sex card game that her parents, and all the kids wanted to play it. It's like, these are middle, school, middle schoolers, 13, 12-year-old girls. Uh, two weeks ago, there was a, a boy who asked a girl to send her, him some nudes and she texted him some nude pictures and he was telling the whole school about it and everybody was talking about it. I mean, just, it's, it's shocking. I mean, our, again, our 13-year-old daughter is asking us about oral sex because people are talking about that at school. Or, and she asked us a couple months ago, what is a 69er? Because all her girlfriends were talking about that at school. These are middle school girls, and the reason I'm telling you that, and our daughter, she is this bold uh, evangelist, I mean, so they'll talk about that, and she'll just tell them. Y'all shouldn't be talking about that. I mean, she is really, she's so bold that it kind of, it drives some of them crazy. I mean, she just will get in their face about it, and and, uh, she is always sharing her faith with everybody, and she leads worship and teaches the Bible study for FCA every week, so she's Real aggressive. So if they're saying that stuff in front of her, imagine what they're saying when she's not around. Um, she's, I mean, she's just told us so many things like that that just says reinforce the idea. And this really isn't the point of, of our talk, but I do want to say to those of you that are parents, talk to sex, talk about sex with your kids uh, because they're talking about it. So don't be one of these naive parents to think, well, my kids, they don't think about that you know they're talking about it at school they're talking about it i mean it's just it's it's everywhere in our culture and so we need to we need to teach our children
0: well i had two of those naive parents that didn't talk about it and um you know life was different then but my mom really didn't talk to me a lot about it i think she was kind of embarrassed and so um actually i think i heard the birds and the bees at church. I think she talked to me a little bit. I don't know. So anyways, I just grew up with thinking that really that sex was dirty. And, you know, I just didn't really want to talk about it. I didn't really want to have it. And then with our, just like we're talking about today, with our relational issues, you know, feeling like that I was not being heard, feeling you know, just feeling like we are not on the same team. You know, we are against against one another, of course, That affected our um, sexual relationship, and um, at the beginning, you know, I never really wanted to have sex that put a lot of strain on our marriage. And I've had to learn through the years, you know, even for me, at times we were going through this. It's a little um, bit—you have to come up here to be vulnerable anyway, but to come up here and talk about sex, you know, that can be that can be hard. But we do have to realize that. When we counsel couples, so often the number one thing is about sex. And so we have, have had to will, be willing to be vulnerable and to share with them. And when you look through um, Song of Solomon, I mean, you can kind of blush when you start reading Song of Solomon, but it is all about sex, so we need to be willing to talk. So the
1: purpose of sex is oneness, pleasure, and procreation. And I think when Tina and I got married, I thought sex was about pleasure. She thought it was about procreation. That was a problem. So I thought we should be having sex daily. She thought three times would be enough, right? I was reading this week about a husband who was sick, and the wife took him to the doctor. The doctor looked him over, took the wife into his office, and just said, listen, if you'll cook him three good meals a day, and to build a meaningful sex life with him, he's going to be fine. As they were driving home after the appointment, and the husband looked at his wife and said, well, what did the doctor say? She said, he said, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> so how do, we build, how do we build a great sex life? Well, here's the first thing. Great sex requires sexual purity. Great sex requires sexual purity. One of the reasons our sex life was so difficult in the early years is because we both brought an unhealthy view of sex into our marriage. So for me, because I grew up the way I grew up, I had in fifth grade, I had a friend whose dad had a big stash of pornography. And so from fifth grade until our first year of marriage, I had a real problem with pornography. Uh, So I I would look at pornography regularly. When I got in college, I had a roommate for a couple of years who probably had 300 magazines in his room, dozens of tapes and videos, VHS, if y'all can remember what that is, VHS tapes in his room. And so pornography became this thing that I was just completely enslaved to it. I love the Lord, but I was enslaved. Out of my brokenness, I was enslaved. And uh, it took years to really learn and to walk and to work towards freedom. But I brought those expectations. I thought Tina should act in the bedroom like what I experienced in a magazine or on a video. And if guys, if you don't know this, you're not married to a porn star. And what you see, if you've, if you've got history with porn, the truth is, even what you see there, that's not real. Even those girls don't act like that in their own bedroom. It's a show. You know, they're just selling something that's not even real. But I brought those expectations into our marriage. When we went on our honeymoon, I was so excited about our honeymoon. You know, we'd been waiting. Tina, Tina because of how she grew up, I mean, she was able to keep the brakes on sex. And so when we got married, boy, I was, I was excited. So we got to the honeymoon, and, and I had gone to Spencer's, and, and I had three different cans of whipped cream. I had some edible underwear. I had, I had, I had some stuff. And we got there. I ended up throwing all that away because she'd see it and just start crying. It was bad. It was not helping me. But that gives you an idea. Here I am on my honeymoon, and I think I need whipped cream. I mean, the truth is, on your honeymoon, the discovery of sex should be more than enough. But I had expectations. I had unrealistic, unreasonable expectations. And that wasn't Tina's issue. Man, that was my issue. The truth is, I should never have had those expectations. So if you're going to have a great sex life, a big part of it is sexual purity. Tina told you about her growing up, sex was taboo. And so she came into the marriage thinking, you know, it was dirty. And it took us a while to to work through that. For a lot of people, the issue is abuse. And as some of you have abuse in your past that impacts your sexual life today. So every time you and your spouse are going to have sex, you you're wrestling emotionally and spiritually and psychologically with the pain and the abuse of your past. And that's not your spouse's fault. It's not your fault. But there's something there that's got to be, we've got to be settled so it doesn't become a, a problem for, in our marriage. And this is, a, this is a problem for men and women. So there are, we counsel couples, believe it or not. Uh, I can think of a one couple that we were really, really great friends with, neighbors of ours and uh I mean the man did not want to have sex, and uh she wanted to have sex and and he i mean literally they would go a year and not have sex i mean it was it was a ongoing problem in their marriage, and of course, we have counseled a lot of couples where the woman is just they 're just not really interested in sex and just creates this ongoing Conflict. So, but a key is sexual purity because impurity makes, makes what is already a little challenging and vulnerable. It makes it far more complicated, far more complicated. In fact, you know, today, guys who are involved in, in internet pornography, half of them, this is a crazy statistic, just read this this week half of the men involved in internet pornography lose interest in actually having sex. They've substituted a virtual experience for having sex, sex with a real life person. Have y'all, seen, have y'all noticed how, especially if you're watching sports now, there's medication for erectile dysfunction all the time in prime time you ever wonder why that's true? You want to know why that's true? One-third. They're not selling those pills to old people. One-third of college students, because of pornography, are struggling today with erectile dysfunction. Can you imagine being a college student? Not an 80-year-old. A college student. and You're having a hard time performing. You see, that's the thing is that pornography and the enemy is always trying to kill still destroy he wants to take it away from us God's given us sex as a gift that ought to be a blessing and should strengthen our minute our marriage the enemy's actually trying to rob you of that what was one of the things that was so bad about our pre-marriage counseling our pastor told us our pastor told us if our sex life got in a rut pornography might help pastor told us that. And uh, so luckily, you know, I I married a woman who, you know, would go down that, that road because early in our marriage that would have been fine with me. But the truth is, that is hurting. It is not helping your marriage. Sexual purity will help your sexual life. If your spouse was the only person you ever saw naked they look better and better. That's the truth. If your spouse is the only person you ever have sex with, they're fantastic at sex. But if you've watched other people or had other experiences like me, then you're in this battle where you're you're trying not to evaluate your spouse by those images or those previous experiences. And a truth, that's... The truth is, that's a burden that Tina should never have to bear. And the good news is, as you fight for your purity, number one, you can be free. Men, you can be free from pornography. And today, about 30% of women are looking at pornography. You can be free. It is possible. Freedom comes, let me give you some steps while we're talking about purity. Number one, you've got to take some practical measures. So Jesus said, if your eyes causing you sin, pluck it out. If your hand's causing you sin, chop it off. What does he mean? I don't think we have to really pluck our eyes out. Because I think we could lust if we were blind. But what we do need to do is we need to take some very radical measures to avoid pornography. For me, Tina caught me looking at porn about six months into our marriage. So our marriage was already in a mess. We moved back to Wilmington. I was upstairs looking at pornography. This was back in dial-up. You know, it took about 30 minutes for an image to come up. It took about 30 minutes for the image to go down. That was the problem. As I was upstairs on the computer, Tina was downstairs watching TV. A commercial came up. She jumped up to run upstairs to go to the bathroom. And bam, I could not get that thing to close fast enough. And I was busted. You can be free, though. So what I did was for 10 years, for 10 years, I had no Internet access. Now, today, things are a little different. I mean, it's, it's a little harder maybe to, to, to do that, but I would tell you to do whatever you have to do. For 10 years, I had no Internet access. When I got Internet access, everything I have, my phone, the computer at our house, my computer in my office, It's on lockdown. So I have covenant eyes on everything. It's all filtered and guarded. And I don't know the password. So somebody in my office sets all that up. So I don't have the capacity to change it. I am intentionally stupid when it comes to technology. Because I don't want to know how to get around what is there for my protection. But I just intentionally put those safeguards in place to guard myself. I made a decision. I would never go into a bookstore without my wife again. That's been 20 years. Never go into a bookstore without my wife. I won't, I'm not going into Barnes & Noble without my wife. Now, I'll go into Lifeway. But I won't go into a secular bookstore without my wife being there. It's just, just very, very practical. I w- will never, ever, ever, ever be alone with a woman other than my wife or somebody in my family. You know, we're just very guarded about that. Occasionally, I've, I've got couples that kind of push back on that at church and say, well, you know... It's just a coworker, and we go to l- well. You can be dumb and go to lunch with your coworkers if you want. I'm not doing that. I just think it's a. I just think it's a bad idea. I think it's a bad idea. So I'm never going to be alone with a with another woman. In our house, we do not have HBO, Showtime. We're never going to have pay channels on our television. There's just garbage on there. There's garbage on Prime Time, ABC, NBC, CB. I mean, there's garbage on that. We. Basically, I don't watch television unless it's a ball game. And even in ball games, you've got to be careful with commercials. I mean, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, you've just got to put your mind on lockdown. Whatever you feed will live. And whatever you starve will die. So if you starve your flesh and feed your spirit, you can live in freedom. So the first thing I did is I just had to get really radical about guarding myself. And I live, somebody asked Billy Graham towards the end of his ministry, how have you lived all these years and remained uh, sexually pure without blowing it like so many others? You know what he said? I live every day scared to death. I live every day scared to death. I I'm afraid today to give myself that freedom. And maybe I could give myself those freedoms and it wouldn't be a big deal today. I'll just never know. I'm just... You know, the Bible says, listen, be careful not to believe that you're just above sin, that that you're good. Or else you might fall into sin. Pride comes before destruction. So i got to be really careful about that. So I live... So that was the first thing, is that we just... Practically, I cut it off. Secondly... You must, and this is the most important thing in every person's life ever born. You've got to learn to develop a meaningful time with God every day. At the end of the day, you were created to worship, you will worship something. There are no exceptions. You are a worshiper, you worship something. What we get to decide is what are we going to worship? What is going to be the object of my worship? And if I make the object of my worship Jesus, that is the one and only thing that really sets me free from everything else. So I can create all these rules and I can have an accountability partner and in the strength of my, my willpower, then for some of us, I can for a season not do the wrong thing. But if I'm actually going to be free, I must replace what was bad... With what is good. I've got to learn to connect with God and to hear from God and allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to wash over and renew my mind and my thinking and my worldview and to change that and to renew that. And I've got to do it every single day. Do not be conformed to the world, Romans 12, 2, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. I've got to renew my mind. So I've got to allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to do that. So listen, purity is something you've got to fight for. And I can just tell you, because I know, my sex life today, and I'm 44, is way better, way better than it was when I was 25. Way better. It's in part because my life is purer than it's ever been. And it's in part because Tina and I have been working at this part of our relationship for years
0: and years and years.
1: So sexual purity is so, so important.
0: And I was just thinking about something because this is something else that we do. Anytime, if Alan is anywhere and he feels any kind of uh, temptation or just, you know, we are ultra sensitive about it. But anytime he feels anything that he has people at our... One of our pastors that's been with us for almost 13 years, they will talk. He immediately comes to me and just says, I just want to go ahead and tell you this. You know, the enemy's trying to tempt me, and we'll pray about it. But just, you know, getting something, we cannot keep it in the dark. We have got to get it in the light and just telling somebody helps you. The other thing is, I know you need to be aware of, of times that I know in a minute I'm going to talk about something that I have struggled with, but you need to be aware of times in your life where you are more tempted. I know for us and for Alan, a lot of times he'll tell me coming out of something big, if we've had a big thing at church, and you know, anytime, I mean, like even for me, we've just come out of 21 days of prayer, then we had revival, then I went to Wilmington, and now I'm here doing this. And I even said to Lane, I said, Uh, Monday and tomorrow when we leave we will get home at 4.30 and about 40 people are going to come into our house at 5.30 to watch the Super Bowl so on Monday when he said something about me being on the couch I'm going to be on the couch on Monday I'm tired but I have to be careful those are the times and you have to decide what that looks like for you know the times when you're more vulnerable to whatever and you really just have to guard your heart um, during that
1: time. So you're saying you're going to need more sex on Monday?
0: Yeah, that's what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to help you out. (laughs) So yeah, so for me, the backside of a big event or sometimes leading up to a big event, I feel, I feel, I just feel the increased spiritual attack because what the enemy's trying to do is rob me of faith and expectancy coming into that big moment. And so I'm just going to talk about it. Listen, if you bring it in the light, you disarm the enemy. The only enemy, the only power the enemy has over a believer is lies and deception, is darkness. So when you bring it in the light, you break and take away his power. When I bring it in the light, it empowers my wife too to to be my sexual satisfaction. So I am fully satisfied. Well that again that robs him of his power in that moment. If I'm around a woman that I think is needy. I tell Tina, that, that girl's needy. We're at church, before and after church, and we're hanging out and just talking to people, meeting people. We do that together so that I can immediately introduce. When, I want I everybody, listen, at the end of the day, I just think men and women, we either give, we, we communicate to other people non verbally that we're available or not available. And it's the way we look at people, it's the way we talk to people, it's the way we touch people. We're communicating in a way that's kind of flirtatious. I'm available, I want you to notice me, or I love you, but I am not available. I am not. It should be obvious to people. And so we, we just are careful about that, you know, we work at it. So, where are we here? Sexual history. Here's just something to keep in mind. Sexual history creates expectations. Sexual purity creates sexual surprises. In case that's confusing, surprises are better than expectations. You know, your, your sex life should be something that's fun and, and, and exciting. And, and the Bible really talks about this. 1 Corinthians 6.9 Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. So sexual purity is not optional. Now why why would God care about our sex life at all? Well, because God wants our sex life to strengthen our relationship and to create this bond that is physical and it is spiritual and it is relational and it's psychological... The Bible says that the two become one. And sex is an experience that... It's it's just like communion and baptism. Those things are a physical physical representation of a spiritual reality. Right? Baptism is a physical representation of my death and resurrection in Christ. Baptism is a physical... I mean, communion is a physical representation of the spiritual reality that I have received the blood and the body of Christ as payment for my my sin. Sex is a physical representation of a spiritual reality that the two have become one. It just cements that in our heart and mind. And that is so important. And just like Tina and I want our kids to have a great sex life, God wants us to have a great sex life. So He's given us these boundaries and these instructions and this uh, to, to help maximize our experience. Most people, most people think that God is like a killjoy who's holding out on us. No, God's trying to bless you. Jesus said, I came that you might have abundant life. It's the enemy that came, came to steal, kill, and joy. He came to give us life. God wants to bless us. So the boundaries are for our, our protection so that we can really enjoy one another. It's like there was a study years ago and I don't know who did it or many of the details but here's what, the study was this. They put a group of children on a playground. Have y'all ever heard this? No fence. They just put kids on a playground. And they're trying to monitor and measure their play and how far they would venture away from the playground, the play stuff in the middle. Without a fence the kids stayed closer to the PlayStation, and we're much more cautious in their play. When they put a fence up, the kids are running around wild. You know why? Because they feel safe. There's a border. That's exactly how God has created our life. The Word of God is the fence that gives us the freedom to run and enjoy life. That's why I put the fence there. So you wouldn't have to be afraid that if I run too fast, I'm going off the cliff. That's why he's given us those boundaries. So, in the context of marriage, sex is this wonderful, playful, enjoyable, enjoyable part of our relationship that should strengthen our relationship. So, this is why our our purity is so important. And you're going to talk some about.
0: I think just like when we talk about porn, and for a lot of the time, I think um, porn has been a bigger issue for men. It appears, but in like he's saying, and I think the statistic now is thirty percent of women but not even talking about when you say porn i think as ladies i think we need to be careful of even watching um ro- romantic movies and getting caught up in that i know as a young girl one of the things that caught my attention you know out of my wound was i would start to watch i would watch these romances and it really I felt like it met a need in me, it made me feel something, and, you know, even a lot of them are not really necessarily, you know, bad, what you're watching, but it felt like it met a need, but it really didn't meet a need, only God could meet that need, but it was just something that I looked to, and I think that the older I've gotten, um, you know, I have still... Um, dealt with that some and it causes you just like with a man with porn he comes in with um, unrealistic expectations it it can cause us and it caused me to in in my relationship with Alan for that our marriage should look like a movie and that and that's just ridiculous it's not it's a movie it's on a set it's not real life they're just having this one moment. They haven't lived life together like Alan and I and made a life together. You know, it's it's really a lie. And so our marriage should not look like this, you know, all caught up, you know, wonderful. You get caught up in it and then you carry that into your, um, with your husband. And if it doesn't look like that, You get mad and you get let down and it causes you to be vulnerable to even to venture out. The only movie I would say it is the best love story in the world is Pride and Prejudice. And that is how a woman should be... um, Sought after the man, he went after her in the right way. It is a beautiful, it's even a beautiful picture. There's a scene at the very end, and I, you can tell I like romances, but the music is playing, and he's coming, and he's got on, he's coming to uh, get her, and his, even like his jacket is flowing in the wind. And I seriously, I was sitting there, I was like, I was like, this is even a picture. It's hard how- to live up to. This is even a picture of how, I thought, of how God loves us. He is coming after us. So I'm going to show that to my girls because it is a good movie. It's a beautiful picture of romance. Um, and I think, I think that so was So the honest.
1: idea, you know, with, with porn, the danger is a man looks at porn and porn that the woman on the other side of that screen says, I want you. That's why I'm uncovering. That's why I'm doing all this because I want you. And, and men get, it's like crack. And then a romance, though, does the same thing for a woman. So if we're not, if we're not careful, we, we just have to really guard our hearts and to make sure that a man's not looking to porn or some sexually explicit thing to find validation. And a woman has to make sure she's not looking towards a romance novel or a movie or something to receive that same kind of, validation, affirmation, we need to get that from each other. So we have to guard our hearts and just make sure we're not trying to get that from somewhere else.
0: And I was just going to say that just like Alan said, you know, for 10 years he had, I mean, he did some things that people even like kind of made fun of him. But he just was so, he just so wanted to get free from this. And God has set him free that, I I mean, I've gotten to the point with me over the twenty one days you know we fasted TV and didn 't watch movies and stuff that and I love to watch movies, but um even I, I need to get this in my relationship from from Alan, but also what I experience in these movies kind of getting just called up in a fantasy world, I need to get that from Jesus, and so I even want to be careful if it means I need to go a while where i don 't watch movies i want to, i don 't want to be called up in another word, I want to, God has called me to live and I want to live this life and all that God has for me. So if it means, you know, it's something I'm praying about. I, I just want to be so careful like Alan that I don't do anything that's going to get me to be caught up in another place other than seeking God and, and seeking my husband.
1: I want to make sure we have some time for questions at the end. So we're not going to read the Proverbs 5. It's a little long. But you know the whole chapter just talks about the importance of purity. And men, every man, every man wants their wife sexually to be confident and to be free. If you want your wife to be confident and free sexually, you make sure she understands that she is the only one you see. The reason women lack confidence. And lack the security really be free sexually with you. Is often because they feel like they don't measure up to what you're looking at. So your purity again actually helps your sex life. Here's the second thing. Is great sex requires Patience. I was reading about a wife. She was a little frustrated. She took her husband to the pastor for counseling. And the wife said to the pastor about her husband, He has no fire. He has no passion. He just sits there. And the pastor got up from his chair, walked around his desk, kissed that woman right on the lips with great passion. He looked at her her husband and said, That, sir, is what your wife needs. He said, great, I'll bring her in every Tuesday and every Thursday. That'd be awesome, (laughs) right? Great sex requires patience. You know, when I was 25, I thought I knew something about sex. And the truth is, after 20 years, man, our sex life today is better than it's ever been. But the secret to a great sex life is a great relationship. And a great relationship just... Requires a consistent investment over a long period of time. And again, that's true with the Lord. It's true with your spouse. It's true with your kids. Relationships take time and a consistent investment. And when you do that and you build a strong relationship, sex is the natural byproduct of a strong relationship. Sex is the fruit of... Of a strong relationship, so it, it requires some patience. It just takes some time. So listen, again, when you're struggling sexually, most couples don't need a sex book. They don't need a prescription to Cosmopolitan to learn 25 mind blowing moves. I mean, every time I see those covers, it is so. Re- there are no more moves. That is so dumb. There aren't but so many ways to do it. That's ridiculous. The key is a great relationship. Listen, the truth is, it's not sex, it's making love. Those are different things. If all it is is having sex, you know, if it's just getting off, that will never be... Listen, unless you're 18, that's not satisfying. What's satisfying is making love. It's being in love with a a spouse and... And really enjoying intimacy and everything that that does for your relationship. That's what we're at, there. that's what we're trying to build. Third thing great sex requires practice. Practice makes perfect, right? And at the end of the day, there's some of you that you've given up on sex, you're tired of fighting about it, it never. there's always some issue. We'll take the principles that we talked about in the last section. And we're, by the way, recording all this. It's going to be available online at the your website, podcast, app, wherever your sermons normally are, this will all be available. But listen to that previous section about conflict and how to talk and work through things and apply that to your sex life. Listen, sex is like any other issue in your marriage. You gotta talk about it. You gotta learn and figure it out together. You gotta to come up with solutions together. You just gotta keep you got to keep working at it and, and to be sensitive to the needs of, of each other. Now, a couple of things I think we need to be sensitive to, guys, in particular. This can be true for both, but it's more likely to be true for guys, I think, generally. Is that we have to be careful not to idolize sex, even in the context of our marriage. So for me, early in our marriage, I idolized sex. And it's not that sex was immoral because we were married. But I was... Trying to get sex to do for me what God should do. I was trying to get sex to validate me. I was trying to get affirmation from sex. I was trying to find my identity in sex, and, and trying to get, hopefully Tina's going to do all the right things, and that's going to make me feel like a man. Again, that's a burden Tina was never intended to carry. That's a burden sex was never intended to carry. I've got to get that from the Lord, so I need to idolize God so i can enjoy sex if i idolize sex like anything else it enslaves and destroys me if you idolize sex even in your marriage it drives you apart it doesn't bring you together because your spouse feels the weight and the pressure of having to come through for you that's not what sex is about that's that's really using your spouse as an idol To try and settle something in your heart that only God can settle. So I've got to be careful about that. I want to love God. I want to idolize God so I can enjoy my wife rather than demand that she come through for me. Because that puts a pressure on our relationship and our sex life that actually destroys it. Do you want to talk about sex being a weapon?
0: And we don't want to use sex as a weapon to... um to hurt or to get back at them. Again, that's a relational issue. If we're upset about something, we need to come together and talk about it. And, you know, we have this as a joke. We need to take some Tylenol. We can't keep saying we have a headache. I've, I've been there, done that. Um, God created sex. You know, I want to enjoy sex, too. And it, It's taken me some time to develop that. But God also um, uses sex as a way for me to really minister to Alan And um, I am the only woman that can really minister to him in this way and should be the only one that ministers to him in that way. And God, and you know, there's times where I really don't want to, but I want to serve him and I do it. And God, um, and God just really blesses that.
1: And it reminds me for a woman, and you've probably heard this before, sex begins in the kitchen. In other words, for a woman, she is turned on generally emotionally, relationally. When Tina and I feel close, when, we feel, when she feels like we're connected, we've had time to hang out, we've had time to talk. So, for example, she was just out of town for four days. Well, if I'm not careful, by day four, boy, I'm ready for her to come home. And she walks in the door and it's like, are you busy? Let, leave the stuff in the car, come on. The truth is, that leads to a bad experience. Because we've been apart for four days. And if we've been apart for four days, the last thing she feels like doing in that moment is jumping in the bed. So I need to be wise, and I need to let her come home, and for us to have time to connect. And like this time, she came home Thursday, and it was yesterday. But that gave us time to connect. It actually gave us time to to get away and to be by ourselves without the kids. It gave us a a three-hour drive up where we could talk and just connect and kind of, you know, really just get connected again. And then sex becomes the natural byproduct of this relational strength instead of something that I'm using Tina for because I need that. See the difference in those two things? And that makes the actual experience. Now, now, I had to wait another day this time.
0: Now, yeah, when we got here yesterday, he was ready. <laughs> but it was worth the wait.
1: So sometimes, guys, sometimes you might look at your wife and say, well, it's like you're not even into this. Well, it's because you didn't do that connection part. She's not. She's just trying to be nice. So you've got to connect relationally so that she can be into it. And then the experience is better. Listen, again, when you're a a young person and some of of y'all are looking around the room and, and you're still in your early 20s and you don't even know what we're talking about. You just like to have sex. It doesn't really matter, right? You know, the older you get, if Tina doesn't enjoy it, I don't enjoy it. If it's not good for her, it's not good for me. I'm not, I'm not having sex just because I need to have an orgasm. I mean, you outgrow that. There's a reason the Bible calls it youthful lust. Right? I mean, we out, we move, unless we're uh, not guarding our purity and, and the internet is creating all kinds of unreasonable expectations and stuff. I mean, generally speaking, as we get older, as we're married longer, then sex is so much more relationally driven than just this physical thing. So by waiting, I had a fantastic experience yesterday. If I would have rushed into that on Thursday, I would have been disappointed. Not only would Tina have been disappointed, I would have been disappointed because it would have been obvious, you know, we did it, but she's not there. I want her to be there. So that means we got to connect first. That's so important. For a man, ladies, for a man, sex is about responsiveness. so one of the things that used to happen a lot in our early years is I would let Tina know you know i would I would say, "Hey,- you know you think we could have some time tonight or whatever you say? You know we've all got our thing that we say or do, so I would let her know, and she'd go I'd I start crying you know." <laughs> I mean, she'd, she'd make all those nonverbal, you know, gestures that said, I'll let you, but I'm not. It, you know, it, I wasn't wanting to do that, but I, I guess we can. Well, again, by the time she does that, I'm like, I'm not interested now. I mean, that's, just not, that's really not meaningful to me any longer. I mean, that was great on our honeymoon because, you know, I was just hoping you'd say yes. But now, 20 years in, if you're not into it, I'd rather, I'd rather us get to a place to where you're, when you're ready, I'm ready. And uh, so, for a woman, though, if you can be responsive, when your husband lets you know that he'd like to have sex tonight, respond positively. Say, that'd be great. Yeah, let's do that. Maybe we should get a sitter. Let's go to dinner. Let's catch a movie. Then we can come home. It's going to be a great night. I mean, be positive about it. That blesses your husband. I've told Tina before, and and this is true. On one hand, Tina is not responsible for my purity. So I could never say, well, I did something dumb out here because you're not doing enough for me sexually. I can't say that. That's wrong. I'm responsible for my purity. However, I can also say, because my wife has so blessed me in that area, I never am outside of my marriage thinking about sex. Never, ever, ever, ever. I I mean, literally, years, years and years and years and years and years since I've entertained the idea of what it would be like to be sexually Involved with somebody else. I, I, I'm so satisfied at home. I'm thinking about Tina all the time. I'm planning three days out. You know, I'm, how do we get ready, man? We got three days. Let's, let's, let's make this thing happen. I mean, I'm so captivated by who Tina is. I don't have time to pay attention to any other women. That's what marriage is supposed to be. I mean, one of the things sex, I think, does, one of the ways God uses sex is it creates the, the fuel for that pursuit. That we're constantly moving towards each other and running after each other. Anything else you want to say about that before we do these questions? All right, some frequently asked. These are just questions that people ask us a lot in pre-marriage counseling. Number one, how often should we be having sex? You really shouldn't think of sex as like this checklist thing and we need to do it a certain number of times a week. All of that, I think, would indicate a mindset that's really missing the point. What you do want to do is you want to focus your attention on building and strengthening that relationship. And as you do, then what happens is you create an environment where you both are trying to be sensitive to each other's needs. So I know that I need to be sensitive to Tina's need to connect, to spend time together. To just hang out talking. To be together without it being sexual. So I know I need to be sensitive to that. I'm thinking about it all the time. Tina knows she needs to be sensitive to my desire to have sex. And so when we have a strong relationship, what happens is you've got two people who are very motivated to do what blesses their spouse. That's what you want marriage to look like. Instead of, and this is the way it was early in our marriage... Where I'm constantly saying, Tina, we're not doing it enough. Let's do it more. And she's constantly saying, isn't that enough? Right? It's like this tug of war. It shouldn't be a tug of war. It should be, we've got this strong relationship. And so both of us are motivated to ask the question, what do you need in this area? How can, we, how can I serve you in this area? How, how, you know, how do we be sensitive to what we both need, so this is part of our relationship that strengthens it, not weakens it. Okay? Next question, is it okay to have sex while on my period? Now, that might seem like a silly question, but a lot of uh, premarital couples ask us that question. I think it'd be challenging to make the argument that it is sinful to have sex with your spouse anytime. However, I will also say, I suspect, I can't wait to ask God this question. I suspect that the reason a woman has a period is to keep us from idolizing sex. One of the things that Tina and I have learned over the last couple of years, our church, I don't know if y'all do this or not, but a couple of times a year, one of the things that we learned from Church of the Highlands, which is a church that's mentored us for years, is to do this 21 days of prayer and fasting and do it twice a year. And so fasting has become, you know, really part of our life and our lifestyle. And one of the things that we usually fast during that time is sex. It's hard to fast sex for three weeks when you have a great relationship. But it's just taught us not to idolize sex. And I suspect that a woman's period is one way that God kind of helps us to fast sex because here's the thing you need to know about sex. Sex is the closest thing to worshiping God you'll ever experience. You say, wait a minute. That almost sounds theologically like, is that heresy or something? Here's what I mean by that. Sex is the most intimate connection you can have with a person created in the image of God. It's the most intimate connection you can have with a person created in the image of God. Therefore, if we're not careful... It's easy to idolize. See, it's a lot easier to connect and have sex with Tina than to connect and to have intimacy with an invisible God. Right? And so again, if I'm not careful, even in the context of marriage, I'll idolize sex. And I'll be a Christian and I love God. I just don't need Him. I need Tina. I don't need God. I think a period actually creates a a situation where it allows me to monitor the condition of my own heart and to ask the question, what is the object of my worship? What is the one thing that I desire and I will seek? Is it sex with Tina or is it my intimate connection with God? So I think that's the value of that time. And again, I'm not saying you, you should never do that. I'm just, what I am just saying is I suspect that God has created a practical way for us to guard our hearts, and to focus on our relationship with Him and each other. Here's the third thing. Can a married couple use porn? We've talked about that. Absolutely not. Again, we have have couples that come into marriage counseling, and they know I'm their pastor, and they're asking me that question. Absolutely not. It hurts. It doesn't help. It drives you apart. It doesn't drive you together. It creates all kinds of expectations and insecurities and I mean, it just creates a, and and the truth is, it invites demonic activity into your, into your marriage and into your bedroom. I mean, a demon. I mean, the, a real spiritual force that is present to wreck your life. So, you just want to close the door on that completely altogether. Uh, wh- I'm about to get real. Here we go. What about oral and anal sex? A lot of people ask us that. And I'll just say this. I think you have a lot of freedom in your marriage. However, this is so important. Because again, porn has so pushed these lines that a lot of men live with the idea that if I don't get my wife to do that, then I'm not going to be sexually happy. That is ridiculous. If you're thinking that way, that's probably demonic. The enemy has deceived you into believing That there is a sex act that is going to satisfy you and make everything wonderful. That is not the secret. The secret is your relationship. When your relationship's great, sex is great. And so you never want to be pushing your spouse to do something sexually that they don't want to do, that they're not comfortable with. So, again, it's one of those things y'all have got to talk about and y'all have got to make a decision together. But don't push your spouse to do something that they don't want to do because they feel like it it turns them into an object. They feel like it disrespects them. They feel like it cheapens them. Again, that's not going to help your sex life. If your spouse feels like they're being used by you sexually, that works against you having a satisfying sex life, not for it. So again, we've got to be very careful because the world today is promoting every kind of extreme sexual experience. And I'm just telling you, it is generally demonic and evil. We have to be very, very careful not to try and get out there on the fringe somewhere and think there's a, there's a secret because it's just not. So you've got to talk together and you've got to, y'all have got to decide where your boundaries are. And you've got to be careful not to allow the enemy to convince you that a great sex life is just on the other side of your spouse's boundary. Because that is just not the case. That's a lie. Uh, number five, what if once one of us wants more sex than the other? Again, the issue is we just got to talk that out and work it out so that we can work together. To come up with a, a a frequency that you both can feel good about, you just got you gotta keep you gotta keep working at it. And, and I will, and I'll, I'll add this to it. We do have to make sure, and, and and every one of us have got to take responsibility for this personally. We got to make sure that there are not things in our past driving that conversation. So we can't say, I don't really want to have sex because I've got this sexual abuse in my past and every time we do it, it takes me back. Listen, that's not your spouse's fault. So we've got to get some help so we can settle that so that we can come into our marriage and be a full participant. So we've got to do that. Same thing with purity. We've talked a lot about it. I've got to make sure that I don't have unreasonable expectations because of my impurity, my involvement with porn or something else like that. So that I can come into my marriage with reasonable expectations that are driven by our relationship i've got to make sure that i'm not idolizing sex so i'm not i'm 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 not looking because then I, I remember we had a couple one time that were counsel that the husband wanted to have sex twice a day you know I mean generally speaking that's ridiculous i mean it's just i mean it, Again, here's the problem. If a man's thinking that, if a man's thinking that, you have idolized sex, absolutely. You've idolized it. So you've got to settle that so that your sexual expectations are are reasonable and healthy and life-giving to your spouse. Now, ladies, if you want to have sex once a month, that's just as bad. Right? I mean, that's not reasonable. Well, you know, we did it last month. That's not reasonable. That's not reasonable, you know. Uh, I think the national average is twice a week. Tina didn't want me to tell you all that. I think that's the national average. That's probably our average. Um, one but. time
0: he did a, said an average from the pulpit, and um, we actually have a, my gynecologist goes to our church, and all these girls came in, and they were freaking out because they were like, I cannot, you know, one girl really had a genuine reason, and so I you just got to figure it out together like he's saying. I don't want somebody to feel under pressure. I guess that's my only
1: thing. And, and I think, you know, I, didn't, I just listened to her share that, and I took it in mind, and I, and I want to be careful, you know, when we talk about this topic. But most of the things, for example, that those girls were sharing are just things they got to work through. So, like, when, when we, all our kids were this big and they couldn't feed themselves or wipe their own butts. Hard to have sex very often, you know. I mean, you're just under so much pressure, right? Well, that changes. So that so there was a season. There was a season where having sex a couple times a week even was really challenging. Uh, we're in a different season now. So just keep working at it. Just here, you both just need to know, in case one of you doesn't know, that this is an important part of your relationship. And some people have a tendency to say, well, that's just sex. That doesn't really matter. It's about our friendship. Well, your friendship is very important. Tina is my very best friend. But our sex life's important too. Um, so it's it's both. It's not one. It's not one or the other. Uh, what if one of us wants kinkier sex than the other? Again, we just we just talked about that. Y'all have got to work together to decide where your lines and boundaries are. And you do not need to violate the conscience of your spouse. And, and again, an, an, another way to um, probably to help with that, for Tina and I, almost every time we have sex, we pray and worship before we have sex. And when you're praying and worshiping and inviting the Spirit of God into this moment, it's hard to then, in the same moment, try to get your spouse to do something they're really not comfortable doing. Right? So invite God is in that moment. Everything we do should be an act of worship. Everything we do should honor and bless the Lord, as unto the Lord. So we need to do it well, as unto the Lord, right? So is it okay to use birth control? I mean, my personal conviction, I, I think it is. Um, I don't think, we well, obviously we shouldn't use abortion as birth control. Uh, but I think there are forms of birth control that are, are safe and do not uh, jeopardize the life of an unexpected Uh, little one, Uh, but you you know, you've got to kind of, you got to work that out, but we we used birth control, Tina was on the pill for years, and we did that, and and then once we were finished having uh, birth control, I did what I needed to do, so she wouldn't have to live the rest of her life on on a pill, and so, I mean, that's not been a a, a theological problem for us. Uh, Eight, how far is too far for an unmarried couple? At the end of the day, anything in an unmarried couple, anything that's Causing you to to think about and to dwell dwell on sex, you gotta be very, very careful about. It. I mean we challenge couples in our church, and we're like like your church, I and mean, we just got all these young people, all these young couples everywhere. And we tell them when you date, you probably shouldn't kiss before you get married. That is radical. Why? Because I mean you start making out, and next thing you know, you're touching each other, and next thing you know, you're unbuttoning stuff. I mean, it's just At the end of the day, I want to build that relationship on other things. That's the most important reason. I want you to build that relationship on other things. Because sex, like emotion, sex is like a fog that sets in on your relationship. You ever ever had a friend who was dating or engaged to a total loser? And you thought to yourself, why are they doing that? We've all had friends like that, right? Most of the time the problem was sex. Sex just clouded their ability to see that relationship logically and rationally. For a woman, sex actually actually uh, produces a chemical reaction that causes you to believe, I can't live without him. That's science right there. When a woman has sex, a chemical reaction happens. A chemical is released in her that call I think it's called endoxin. That's it, oxytocin. So a chemical is released that causes a woman to begin thinking, I can't live. So she has sex with a loser, she looks at that loser and goes, I can't live without him. And he delivers pizza for a living. It's crazy, right? And so we just have to... We just have to know that and guard our heart and make sure that we're building our relationship. We're building that relationship on all of the other stuff. And if we get all that other stuff right, guess what? Sex is fun and wonderful and enjoyable. But if we don't get the other stuff right, once you get married, if this happens, this happens with couples sometimes. They get sexually involved. They get married. And then all of a sudden after they get married, they're like, what happened? I'm living with a monster. No marriage just lifted the fog. And because you were sexually active before marriage, you didn't know. And that's why, you know, that's why we were challenged. So I just think you got to be radical about it. This idea in the world says, you know, you got to test drive that before you sign up. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Build a great relationship, sex will come later. Don't. Don't, don't, we like that people
0: lot. that deliver pizza. We order them all the time. I just want to make sure y'all. Actually, don't. I
1: delivered pizza for four years when I was trying to talk teen in the Yes, we just me. hope Sorry that, that our children feeling.
0: will marry someone that maybe has a little bit more aspirin. But we love pizza and pizza delivery people.
1: Verse nine. What I mean, number nine. What should I expect on my honeymoon? And uh, this is the last question. And then we're almost out of time. Will you, somebody bring me the bucket from the back? I want to read through the questions, see if there's any we haven't answered. But you know, when you, if, you're, if you're engaged, go to your honeymoon with low expectations. You know, some people, some ladies, they go on their honeymoon and sex is so painful, they really can't, they really can't have sex but a time or two, and, and it's not a great experience. It's just hard. You know, it just takes time for their body to adjust. So if you go to your honeymoon to enjoy each other and have a great time in some vacation spot, then you have a great experience. But if you go on your honeymoon thinking you paid $2,000 to have sex, you could have done that at home. You paid $2,000 to go to Cancun or somewhere. So enjoy that and lower your expectations for sex. With women's clothing becoming more and more revealing, it is distracting to be in church and to see women in clothing that leaves little for the imagination. How do we do? So, there's no question, ladies, we've got to be modest. We, I mean, we've got to work to cover it up. <laughs> cover it up. Cover your cleavage up. Uh, almost all ladies, you know, to, men too, today, we all wear jeans that are, or pants that are tight. Just cover it up. If you're wearing tight stuff and you're, whatever your top is, it's not covering your backside and your front side, then that's just it's just inappropriate. Not just at church, it's inappropriate everywhere. So cover it up, be modest. That is for your husband's eyes only. And we can all work together to guard that. And in our church, we have to just talk about it because people don't know. If they're new to church, they don't know. So we don't need to get mad and offended, but we do have to... Talk about it, and we have to talk about it in a life-giving way. So we have to to make sure with new people that we're handling that, especially unbelievers or brand new believers. We have to be very careful to handle that in a very life-giving way. But, ladies, we gotta we gotta protect ourselves, right? I mean, I I think that's so important. You don't want another man checking you out. You want your husband checking you out. Do you believe the enemy attempts to break up marriages? By dividing the husband and wife. Yes. If yes, what are some of the ways that, and what does Scripture say? Well, again, the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. And the enemy has been attacking marriage from the very beginning. So, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the whole Bible is a marriage story. Genesis 3, 1, 2, and 3 is a marriage story. Sin about destroys that marriage. The Bible, you know what, in fact, I'm going to preach on this tomorrow. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. Why? One of the reasons is because the whole purpose of Jesus' coming is to create an opportunity for us to have a wedding. So you get to Revelation 19 and there's a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's about a, So yes, the enemy hates marriage and the enemy hates children. He does not want us reproducing. Why? Because that's how the kingdom of... God expands. So yes, the marriage is under attack. And y'all just got to fight for your purity, fight for your marriage, stand on the word of God, keep moving forward in your faith. It's just like every other area of your life. What is the biggest sacrifice you make for each other? I think for me, it was pride. So my biggest sacrifice is, I had to, I had to, Invite the Spirit of God to kill my pride. My pride that made me want to be right. Made me want to have my way. That caused me to be demanding and defensive. I had to kill my pride and to really learn to value and respect my wife. See, pride not only elevates me, but it pushes her down. So the biggest sacrifice I had to make was to sacrifice of my ego, which brought me down and lifted her up. Do you have something?
0: I I would just say the first thing that came to me is just um, allowing myself to be vulnerable with Alan. And that would include in our just our relationally and um, in our physical relationship, allowing putting myself out there and trusting him in that way.
1: What would you say to help a couple who lost a child? How do they move on? How do they deal with the guilt and blame? You know, I don't know the situ- the circumstances of how you lost a child, but I would say generally speaking, we've had several couples that um, have had children that had a terminal illness or they were lost in an accident or something like that. And sometimes their both spouses are so overwhelmed with guilt, I mean not guilt, grief and anger and rage. How could God let this happen? All that kind of stuff. And if they're not careful, they'll turn that all of that anger and poison towards each other and at the end of the day like everything else I've got to understand we're on the same team and we have to defeat what's out there that's not so if something happens to one of our children well that's not about us that's about that situation out there so we have to stand together to defeat what happens out there so I just I just say you need to see each other as your greatest ally you need to see your, each other as your, man, that's your teammate. If you're going to win, we got to do this together. And I think that's how to, you know, deal with pretty much every problem we're going to deal with. How do you get your husband to lead or your spouse uh, to lead if they're uh, not, you know, taking the lead? Um, and if the other spouse is a stronger leader. Let's see i tried to say this as nice as possible. <laughs> okay, so in this situation, the wife feels like she is the one leading their relationship. How do I get my husband to take more of the lead? I, I, think, I think a couple things come to mind. Number one, most men, if they're not leading, it's because they either don't know how or they're afraid of failure. So a man generally doesn't do anything that he's afraid he's going to fail out. If he's by himself. So I think the key to that. Is I want to encourage. My husband. If you're married ladies. I think I'd encourage my husband. To get around some men. Where he could learn. What does it look like to lead. So I think, I think that's part of the solution. I think the other part of the solution. Is to recognize the difference. So the way I lead my family. Is very different than the way Tina's dad. Led his family. But he was the leader. So just because he wasn't as verbal as Patsy, it doesn't mean he wasn't the leader. And so I do think we have to be careful not to assume leading means I want my husband to be like that guy Alan that did the marriage conference that talks all the time. That's not necessarily leadership. That just means I talk all the time. So leadership is I'm modeling, I'm pursuing Christ, and I'm trying to allow Christ to be formed in me and then I'm trying to love my wife the way Christ loves me and really model that for my kids and to love my kids that way. And that's what leadership is. Even if I'm never the talker, I'm not out there necessarily driving the agenda, I'm leading by trying to walk with God, love my wife that way, and love my, and love my kids that way. And I think if we can, if, if we can embrace that understanding of leadership, and then help our husband to get connected and release him to be connected with some other men that we respect that he could learn from. I think that's, that's the key. But at the end of the day, we just have to keep in mind it's not our job to fix our spouse. We need to love our spouse well and encourage them. Uh, and be careful not to try to fix them. How do you get your spouse to open up more? Uh, not giving short answers. Well, I suspect that's written by a woman. So let me explain... How men communicate. I pick up my son from school. This is a great this is a great daily conversation. So how Luke, how was your how was your day today? Good. What'd you do? Nothing. Anything exciting happened? Anything new out of the ordinary today? No. You have anything to do tonight? What's no. Great talk. You know, the truth is, guys do not generally talk the way girls talk. You know, there's some research about this where girls use twice as many words in a day as guys do. So you just have to know that, and that's not necessarily bad. In fact, a lot of times, Tina and I even. Now, I I talk when I'm on stage, but when we're together, I don't like sit around teaching her. (laughs) That would not be good right? There's a lot of time we're together. We're not talking at all. We're just together. In fact, more often than not, we're together. We're just together. And not We're not really saying a lot. I mean, we're not trying to f- fill that space with words all the time. We're just learning to be together. So I think part of that is you got to recognize your differences. And then the other thing is I had to work. And I think this is Men, we certainly need to do this, but sometimes the woman is the better talker. It's so like in Tina's parents. Patsy is way more vocal than Larry ever was. I think whoever is the most vo- vocal, they do need to recognize, if I want my spouse to talk more, i got to make sure it's safe. So if my spouse says something, they say a sentence... They are not. They don't talk a lot, so they say a sentence, you know, I've been, work today was tough. And then you spend the next 10 minutes talking about how tough your day was. You know what he just learned? Mmm, not going to do that again. <laughs> so the one that's more vocal has got to be careful not to just, not to interrupt and just start talking. Not to he or she says a couple of sentences and then I talk for 10 minutes and say, okay, do you have anything else to say? And then I talk for 10 minutes. Tina and I have a person in our life that when we're with this person, they never stop talking. And so if she never stops talking, there's never an opportunity for anyone else to get a word in edgewise. I have a pastor friend, literally, he calls me every once in a while and says, hey, can we get together? And he thinks that I'm his mentor. The problem is when we go to lunch, he never stops talking. Literally, I don't say one word. And we get up and he said, man, thanks so much for me- being with me. This helps me. And I always walk away going, I don't know how it helped you. I didn't say a word. You just talked the whole time. So one way to get your spouse to talk if they're not as talkative is to make sure that you're not just running over them with their words and they feel like they can't get a word in edgewise. So that, that could be part of it. How do you overcome years of experiencing a non-listening spouse such that you've given up? Practice ways, practical ways with help. So again, this has been recorded. So take what we did in that last session. Y'all listen to it together and talk about it. You need to be able to say and spouse, listen, whoever sh- this person is talking about, your spouse ought to be able to say to you this afternoon, that's been an issue in our marriage. I feel like you don't listen to me. Could we listen to that talk again and talk about how we could do a better job of listening? Your answer is yes, that's a great idea. You shouldn't say, What are you talking about? I always listen to you. I can't believe you. I am not having this conversation. You know what that means? (laughs) You don't listen. So if you don't respond by saying, yeah, I think that's a great idea. You're the problem. So listen, value your relationship. I am telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. If I could show you what God intends your marriage to look like, you would never choose what you have today over what you could have. If you could see what it would look like to live with a woman... Or a man who feels like you listen. You would never settle for what you have today. I'm telling you, being a good listener will help your marriage. And the one who wrote the question, you need to have the guts this afternoon to say, Hey, we got to talk about that. I was the one. No one else has to know. But I was the one that turned in that question. Let's talk about it. And y'all work that out because I'm telling you, you will be happy that you did. What is the best way to protect your marriage and family against the attacks of the enemy? Again, I I just think generally speaking, and we could talk about this for hours, but I think generally speaking, my personal pursuit of Christ, Tina and I, we're praying together. We pray over our children basically every night, every morning. You know, our church, just like you, our kids love being in church, and so they're There are other people around them that are encouraging them and helping them to grow spiritually. So you just got to stay after it, stay after it, stay after it. Be proactive, be intentional. Do not be passive and think the church is going to fix your children for you. It is your job to disciple your kids. And that begins with your personal walk so you can share with your kids out of your own experience what God's doing in you. Okay? Now listen, I know we're out of time. A couple of people have left. If you need to leave because you've got an appointment, you're not going to hurt my feelings or offend me. And, uh, but if you've got some time and want to hear the questions, feel free. So just so you know that. How does God let you know if you've met the person God has intended you, for you to marry? Well, I, I think that at the end of the day, the Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And if you can't have a peace about moving forward this person, I think that would be a red flag. I think, secondly, you should get some godly counsel. Uh, so you should be some godly people in your life that you're inviting to tell you what do you think about this relationship. Third, you should go through pre-marriage counseling. So actually, that's a bad name. We try not to call it premarriage counseling. We try to call it pre-engagement counseling. Because we've had some couples who went through pre-engagement counseling and ended the engagement. Because it just exposed the problems in their relationship. Because when you get married, here's what you're saying. I'm committing... The rest of my life. I mean, we all say this. Sickness and health. Good and bad. Rich and poor. No matter what happens, I will die to love you. That's what marriage is. I'm giving my life to love you. So until you're ready to do that, wait. But those other things, I think, can kind of help you get to that decision. Pre-engagement counseling. The godly counsel of some other people. A real peace in your heart about your spiritual condition and the per- spiritual condition of the person you're marrying and certainly you don't want to be engaged to or marry somebody that's not a believer. Oh yeah, is the ner- we have a nurse we have people watching kids. Okay, so that's probably not good because we're doing questions and they probably need to go home. So why don't uh, okay, if I, well, here's what we'll do. We'll end our conference officially. But if you would like to hang out and you don't have kids, or if you'd like to go grab your kids and come back and hear to the last, I think we got seven or eight more questions, then feel free to do that. Uh, we'll hang out here a few minutes and answer the questions. If your question didn't get answered, I'd love to, to do that. Okay, here we go. How do you define love within marriage? And can a marriage survive without it? Well, a marriage probably could survive without it, but at the end of the day, you just don't want to ever survive or settle for just surviving. You want to thrive. And and really, marriage, uh, love and marriage should be defined as Paul describes, defines love in general. So agape, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, is the passage that was probably read in your marriage where the Bible says, Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is... Long-suffering. Doesn't keep a record of wrongs. You know that passage. What's interesting about that passage is, in the Greek, those are not adjectives. They're verbs. So Paul is saying, love is being patient. Love is being kind. Love is refusing to have an ongoing list of everything they've ever done. Love is, so all of those things, those are verbs describing exactly what it looks like to love a person. See, in our culture, we think love's a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice to act a certain way. You understand that? So when I love my wife, it's really despite my feelings sometimes. My feelings have very little to do with it. I'm going to choose to act this way, and I'm going to trust Christ to give me the strength to choose to act this way and trust that if I act that way, my feelings will follow. And the way that happens is, Romans 5:5 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured out into my heart through the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love. And so I'm going to sow that, remember, into the heart of my spouse. So love, Paul I mean, God describes it through Paul. There in 1 Corinthians 13. It's also modeled in Christ, laying down His life. And we just need to think of it as an action, not a feeling. It's a choice to relate to a person a certain way. The way God related to me. And if you do that, your marriage will flourish. You don't want it to survive, you want it to flourish. How old do you have to be before you should get married? You know, I think in our... It's kind of a... It'd be a... I think a... Situation by situation. Um, I think you certainly need to finish. I don't think anybody should get married before they finish high school, at the very least. I mean, I think you need a, uh, some educational foundation. It helps not only your marriage, but it helps you to be able to provide for each other and all the stuff that you're going to need to do in the years to come. The Bible also says it's better to marry than to burn. So I think it's silly. Uh, you know, so I, I lead our singles ministry at Daystar and. And one of the things I tell those singles, you know, most probably the average age in our singles ministry is about 30. And I said, the idea that y'all would get engaged and be engaged for a couple of years is ridiculous. You know, at this time, you're either, you know, it's either fish or cut bait. You know what I mean? It's just one or the other. It's, you know, and so, uh, and we help them go through the process to decide if they're ready to make that kind of commitment. But just dragging on this relationship is silly. And I would say, and what I'm telling our children, now we'll see, Now I, I want to be careful and say this with a lot of humility because I haven't done this yet, but basically I'm teaching my children, you're not going to date. So you might have some friends who are the opposite sex, who can hang out with our family, but the idea that you're going to get in the car with somebody that's the opposite sex, that you call your boyfriend or girlfriend and drive all places by yourself, that will never happen. You will be friends until you're old enough to make a lifelong commitment, and then I will help you pick a spouse. And again, I think parents today are scared to death of their kids, and they don't lead their kids. And I th- I, think, think we, I think especially once they get to high school, parents become passive and just say, Well, you know, they, they got their friends now. No, you know why I'm having a Super Bowl party? Because I want my house to be the place where all the kids come. And it's going to cost me a couple hundred dollars. I'm going to have the best food in town. But all the kids want to come to my Super Bowl party. That is intentional. And I'm not talking about little kids. I'm not old kids. And uh, so I just, I, I want to be careful to make sure my kids understand. Dating is not like sexual tryouts to pick a spouse. We're going to guard our heart. We're going to guard our, our, our physical life. And then at some point when the time's right, I'm going to help you pick a spouse. And I've told my, all my kids, listen, y'all look great. You are very smart. And you're my kids. We will find a fantastic spouse. You need to have high expectations. And uh, so, I'm, you know, I'm, it's almost an arranged marriage kind of thing. I mean, I, I'm just going to be very careful to make sure they don't just marry some bum because they think he has cool hair. That ain't going to happen. So, I'm not sure there's a right age, but maybe that gives you some ideas. How can you sit around as a spouse and watch your spouse self-destruct with alcohol? You need that. You you can't. You can't. So, you need some help. And uh, you need to ask uh, some people that you trust to help you step into that situation and help your your, uh, spouse get free. The Bible says, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, the whole idea... That when we see a brother called in sin, you who are spiritual, we go and confront them with the goal of restoring them and guarding our hearts so that we don't get judgmental and fall into the same sin. So with a lot of grace, we've got to step into that situation and do what we can to help them move towards freedom. And you just need support. And you need to do it very gently. And you need to convince them, listen, we're having this conversation because I love you and I love us. And I, I don't want alcohol to destroy us. So that's how you would, what if you are good at listening but don't follow through with what you agree on? Repent. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe you need to write the thing down that y'all agreed on and 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 maybe you need to to get some some friends and some people around you that'll kind of hold you accountable and help you follow through. So if you're not following through because you don't know how, then get some Older men with some experience, that can help you know how. If you're not following through because you're afraid, get surrounded by some people with some faith that can walk through it with you and give you the support and courage that you need. If you're not following through because you're just being lazy, get somebody in your life that will kick you in the seat of the pants and say, Hey, you got to do what you got to do. This is what it means to be a man. So um, I think at the end of the day, this is one of the real values of community. We need people to help us do What we would not normally do, because the truth is, left to ourselves, all of us take the path of least resistance. All of us would just settle for mediocrity. God's called you to greatness. So you don't want to settle, you want to get some people around you. It's just like you go to the gym. If you go to the gym and you work out all by yourself, even if you're a really disciplined person, there comes a point where you don't make any more progress by yourself. You know this thing next door, CrossFit? You know one of the reasons CrossFit such a big deal? It's because everything's a competition. And you got two or three people flipping those tires, and everybody's yelling at you and saying, well, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to flip that thing more times than you did in 30 seconds. I mean, it just creates this environment where they're constantly pushing themselves beyond their perceived limits. And we need some people in our life to do that. When I met Dr. Bennett years ago, who's been a mentor for me for 20 years, he began calling me and expecting me to do what I was convinced I couldn't do. And it just became normal. And that changed, you know, that changed my life. So we just need to help each other. Let's, just, let's help each other. The richest man, let's see. Oh. Get in from. So this person is just suggesting a book. I've never read it. It's called The Richest Man in Babylon by George. Lawson, I guess that's supposed to be. Lawson. When in a blended family with grown children, it started out rocky, ill feelings are present, how can fences be mended and interaction be an end result so so the one person isn't always having to choose? Again, at the end of the day, that is a very complicated situation. You need some help. Through the years, Tina and I, every time we've had a complicated situation, we weren't sure what the answer, it wasn't obvious, we didn't know what to do. We got some people around us that we trust, that we know love Jesus and love us. And we say, what do we do? How do we figure this out? So you need somebody to help you understand. Who needs to forgive who? Who needs to change their behavior potentially? How do we bring reconciliation? What does the Bible say about this? Because at the end of the day... The Bible says when our relationships are out of order, it says if somebody sins against me, I go to them. If I sin against somebody, I go to them. Either way, the Bible calls me to be proactive in being a minister of reconciliation and to do everything I can to live at peace with all people. But sometimes we need help doing that because especially when you're in a family situation and... The thing that's creating conflict doesn't go away. In other words, there's a behavior or a mindset or a lack of forgiveness, and it just hangs out there like a cancer and is continuing to poison and pollute your relationship. Well, that's not healthy. And sometimes we need a group of people to point out, here's the cancer we've got to cut out. You know, we've got to forgive, or we've got to stop doing that. It's hard to be in relationship with people who continue to sin against you over and 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 over. Um, You know, the book Boundaries is really helpful with this. So Sometimes we have to create a boundary and guard our heart or else we lose the capacity to even love. So, again, we usually, though, need a community of people to help us to figure that out. Is this a place where I just need to create a boundary and guard my heart? Or is it a place that I just need to forgive? Is it a place where, you know, I need to try to, you know, it's almost an intervention to help this person, like with the alcohol thing, or is it... Is it something, really, it's an issue with me? I've got an expectation that's out of, you know, unreasonable? Again, if I've got a community of people I trust, then they can help me sort through that, and they're not as emotionally involved. So emotion trumps uh, logic. So if I can bring somebody that's not emotionally connected to that situation, often they can help me see clearly what I can't see at all. That's all our questions. Any other questions anybody wants to ask that they didn't get turned in? or. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So when I I dropped out of seminary, when Tina and I were in the middle of that crisis, we moved back to Wilmington. Dr. Bennett is is a retired pastor. He's 95 now. When I met him, he was 70. I thought he was old when I met him. He was 75. He was... Young and I mean just always on the go and so he I went and asked him and said would you help me and nobody I'd never really been discipled by a man So I'd been in church and around a lot of good men but nobody actually took me under my, under their wing and taught me how to pray how to read my Bible how to how to worship how to how to prepare a sermon how to you know run a small group how to visit the sick how to do these kinds of things so I went to I heard that this guy Dr Bennett discipled young pastors, and I went and met with him and said, hey, would you spend some time with me? And he agreed to do it. And uh, so once we made the agreement, I said, well, what do we do next? And he said, well, meet me here tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock. And I was like, what time did you say? <laughs> do you mean tomorrow night? 5 in the morning. And so he started, he did, there was just an expectation. So on one hand, I can't ask you to mentor me, and then the first thing you tell me to do, go, well, I don't do 5 o'clock, but I got 7 open. 7 is open. At that moment, I'm not sure I'd ever gotten up before 7. Right? We're going to meet at 5 o'clock. And so I just started meeting at 5 o'clock, and we'd, we'd get together, and we'd read through the Bible, and he would just teach me how to spend time reading my Bible and to get something out of it. He'd teach me what does it look like to pray, and he helped me to understand that the Lord's Prayer was a model for prayer, and what should be in my prayers when I'm praying every day, and and then he started teaching me how to prepare sermons. And he took me on visitations. And he helped me, allowed me to be. He was serving in a church as an interim pastor. He allowed me to start teaching some and, and going to meetings and going to the hospital. And just, I was just with him. And he just had an expectation. He would call me. Now, this, the first couple of years in our marriage, this was hard. Because he would call me sometimes at five in the morning. The phone's ringing. This is before cell phones and, that vibrated. You know, so the phone rings and, you know, I mean, and Tina's going crazy. What is that man calling? Because, you know, at this moment, she doesn't love me. She'll never be in the ministry. I'm hanging out with this old guy, and he's calling us at 5 o'clock in the morning. What is he thinking? And it just created. But he just stretched me and challenged me. He made me exercise. He exercised an hour a day. Until about six months ago, an hour a day, every day of his life since he was 35. Crazy. And uh so he just started pushing me. You've got to exercise. And he used to say to me, If you ever get a, if you ever get fat, I'll tell people I don't know you, I don't know who you are. I would just claim I have I have no idea who you are, and you're just making that up, and that'll make you a liar. That's what he would say to me. <laughs> and uh he was kind of kidding, I think. I'm not sure, I, I, maybe kind of kidding. But he just I mean he just challenged me to discipline my life. He's challenged me to discipline my life and challenged me to love my wife well. You know, reminded me that, you know, you you don't have an option when it comes to marriage. You have to build that marriage. And and then when I got into ministry, he challenged me. You got to work, and you've got to memorize scripture, and you've got to, you got to preach the whole Bible, and you've got to lead people and how to do I mean he just taught me everything. And uh and and he was constantly pushing me to do what was right, instead of what was easy. And all men, in particular, we need somebody in our life to push us to do what's right instead of what's just easy. Any other questions? Great question. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I I think. Uh, a couple things come to mind. One is, it's like everything else in the Christian life. We have to keep, we have to keep asking God to produce in us what is not, not natural to us. So that's one thing. Second thing is, the same man, Dr. Bennett, has been saying to me my, you know, for the last 20 years, and especially as our church really began to grow and all that, he just has said to me over and over and over again, you got to guard your humility. you got to guard your humility. And, re- and driven that verse in 1 Peter 5, 6, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if you li- it's kind of like a lot of the stuff we've talked about in this retreat. If you really believe that God's working against you in your pride and for you in humility, then you're desperate to stay humble. So that's part of it. And then the other thing is my story and the way I grew up, it was so dysfunctional. I'm just so aware of the grace of God in my life. You know, if, you know, one of the things that makes me nervous for my children is my children have grown up so protected, so safe, in such a healthy environment. It's like I, I want to make sure that there's a... How do I produce a genuine humility in them? You know, for me, a lot of my humility comes out of... I know I almost lost everything on several occasions. And it's hard to believe that, you know, I can just so see the hand of God rescuing me all along the way that it, it naturally produces some humility. And then the final thing, you know what, in the last couple of years, and this has ha- there's been several times through the years where this has happened in different ways, but you know, the last couple of years, our church hasn't grown as much. We grew 5% last year, 5% this year. And like you, we had a seven-year stretch where we grew 30%. And uh, and it's easy to sit back and just say, well, you know, our buildings are holding us back, and that's true. Our buildings have been a problem. We're in the process of building two new campuses and moving into new buildings, which is going to be fantastic. But what that did is it just call. I mean, it just constantly causes us to evaluate. You know, where we're at, where we're at spiritually. How do we raise the spiritual temperature? And I just, I think part of the thing is I'm just so aware that my life is a wreck without Jesus, that I'm just, I'm just, I'm I'm very, very intentionally after Jesus all the time. And I think that naturally helps produce humility. Part of the challenge is people think that having a vision and a plan is contrary to humility. So part of my struggle sometimes is uh, when you're in a successful situation, people make assumptions about you by looking at just these external things without really knowing, you know, what's all going on in your heart. But at the end of the day, I just think we've got to keep, to, we got to monitor our heart. We've got to guard our heart. We've got to guard it from pride. We've got to guard it. From, I was preaching Wednesday. I, here's a great example. I was preaching Wednesday, and uh, we had a, uh, we do a first week Wednesday service, and after the service is over, I, I just talked to Tina, I talked to two or three of our staff, and I just said there was a couple of things. You know, first Wednesday is all of our best people that love Jesus and they want to come to church an extra time. And uh, and it's easy in that environment if I'm not careful to fill a license. And there were just a couple of things I shared that afterwards I was like, you know what, I don't think I should have communicated that that way And I just asked my wife, I asked two of our staff people that I'm real close to that are kind of on our lead team. I just said, listen, y'all, I don't want to ever be a pastor who, because of our success, stands up and just kind of becomes a little obnoxious. Sometimes pastors, they've had so much success, we can get in the pulpit and be a little obnoxious and say some things or say them in a way that we would never communicate with our son that way. You know what I mean? And I just said, you know what, I think, I think in these two times last night, I got in my flesh a little bit, and I just said that the wrong way, and I just want you to help me to pay attention to that. So I'm just constantly monitoring my heart. I knew coming off the stage, I had crossed a line. And so I just wanted, I just immediately, I'm just going to deal with it. I'm not going to sweep that in the rug. Man, I want to walk with God more than anything in the world. And at the end of the day, that's, what, that's, that's the root of all of it you got to want to be right with God more than you want to be right, more than you want to have a big church, more than you want to be liked, more than any of that. I want to walk with God. You know, that's really got to be your passion. One more. Primarily by teaching the people in our church to grow in their faith to the degree that they can't help but tell people about it. It's not really, you know, it's not like we do like an event or kind of this gimmicky type thing that would draw in people. It's helping our people really work with God, walk with God and be transformed. And when that happens, they'll tell people and bring them. So they just bring people. I mean, just like all growing churches. It's I don't forget exactly the number. It's over 80% of all the guests at this church, over 80%. They show up because somebody in the church brought them. That's why you've grown even though you can't see your building from the road. It's because people in the church brought them. So as we continue to help people grow and live in freedom and build great marriages, they can't help but tell people about it. Got a question? Yes. So this is a great example. Y'all compliment each other. Tina and I are just like that. So Tina's sweet. She wants to laugh. She wants to play games all the time. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, do this, do this, you know, if, if I'm not careful. She needs me and I need her. And it's, the, it's when, we, when we come together and we offer both of those things to our kids, then that's what's going to allow them to, to really flourish. So Tina feels the freedom At times to say to me, hey, you need to relax a little. You need to enjoy dinner instead of immediately you finished eating and all you're thinking about is how we're going to get this thing cleaned up and it's a, you know, that's the next job. We're cleaning this up. We're doing it together. Everybody's working. It's like, no, just sit at the table. Laugh. When the kids are acting like crazy people, act crazy with them instead of getting irritated because they're raising their voice at the dinner table. So, I mean, I need her to do that. Well, then I need her to work with me to say, hey, y'all don't just get to run in the living room and dad's cleaning up the dishes. We're going to do this together. And so we do it as a family together. And our girls are getting a little older now. We're going to cook and, and do that together. We're going to grill together. We're going to clean up together. We're going to play the game together. So we both, I want us to do it as a team. And I want us to all work hard so we can knock it out and then we've got more time to play. I do not, I will not allow my wife to be in there cooking everything and then cleaning it all up while we sit on our tail. And nor am I going to do that while the kids are on a screen or something. So what's important for me is they need to have a work ethic. They need to understand we're a part of a family. We all contribute to that family. But then Tina, the big thing she brings is it's going to be great food and we're going to have a good time and we're going to laugh and we're going to act silly and, and I've got, so it's both. We both bring that into the Into the equation. And the truth is. That's about as much of a plan that we have. So the rest of our life is is very free flowy. You know so the intentional things that we do. I've taught my children to read. And I've paid them to read. So they all love to read. I paid my daughter $40 last week. Because she read Charlotte's Web. And she's in third grade. And in my mind. If you're in third grade. And can read a 300 page book. With no pictures. I'm glad to give you $40. And so all of my kids are great readers. They have great vocabularies. My son's, my oldest is 15. He's in all honors classes. I don't think he's done homework one time this year. He doesn't take one note. He sits in class and he makes all A's. He's brilliant. I think one of the reasons he's so smart is he was paid as a kid. When everybody else was doing other stuff, he, he read before he was 10, he had read twice as many books. I, this is the truth. I graduated college without ever reading a book cover to cover. My son had read a hundred books cover to cover by the time he finished junior high. And uh, so, I mean, he reads all these big, you know, all these story books, all the C.S. Lewis books, all the Percy Jackson books, all the, I don't even know what they're all called, but these giant several edition novels, you know, he reads that stuff. And and so my and my girls have done the same thing. So we pay our kids to read. That's something we've done. Um, we try to be intentional to help our kids learn to connect with God. So like the way I do that with with our kids is when they get up in the morning they see me doing it that's the first thing the second thing is every morning before we leave i try to share kind of one idea out of what i read that morning from the bible and i pray heaven down on my children and i pray expectations into my children so my children have been told all their life they are leaders not followers you know it's a simple thing i pray that over them every single day you know I, I'm just creating in my prayers. I'm creating expectations, and uh, of course, we pray with them at night. We're real engaged in in church. We've helped them to to serve at church, and and uh, but I mean, outside of that, we don't have a a real discipline plan. Um, so hopefully, that gives you some idea. But the big thing is, y'all both need to you need to both value what you bring to that equation, and empower each other to bring it because that's what's going to allow your your kids to get to both, the best of both of you. Any other questions? All right, guys. This is awesome. Y'all stayed a late a hour late. Y'all going to have the great. Y'all's marriages are going to be so much better than those other people. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Thank y'all for coming. I appreciate you listening so well. We'll see you in the morning.
0: Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Me and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.